You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us. Reminded to everybody out there, please check us out on all the social media sites. Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast. Instagram is the same, Hazard Ground Podcast. Also on Twitter at Hazard Ground. And stay tuned. Uh, Not sure when this podcast will actually air, but our website is almost up and running. HazardGroundPodcast.com. So we'll let you know when that actually gets live. But stay tuned for everything that we have going on. Joining us in this week's episode is a former Army Sergeant and member of the 75th Ranger Regiment. And he now uh, has aspirations as a filmmaker and making a film about a former Hazard Ground podcast guest. We will get to all of that later on. He is Joel Carpenter joining us. Joel, welcome. Thank you for being here. Mark, thanks so much to you and Hazard Ground for having me. All right, brother. You know, you and I have talked a lot over the past couple of months, and, and we've talked about a whole bunch of other things other than your particular story. So I wanted to hear about you, and I wanted the, the listeners of this podcast to hear about you and tell us how you got your start and why you ended up in the military. Yeah, so um, yeah, going all the way back, uh, I was a military brat, and um, so long line of, uh, of military in my family, and, uh, and uh, kind of had really made that decision in my life of, of what I wanted to be, but there was basically narrowed down to two things. I wanted to be in special operations or I wanted to go out to Hollywood and uh, give a crack at, you know, acting and, and filmmaking and all that. And um, so uh, when I was uh, 20 years old, I dropped out of uh, college after three years attending and went out to uh, Los Angeles, didn't know anybody. And uh, and took a crack at the uh, acting and, and film uh, filmmaking world, and um, ended up uh, enlisting in the 75th Ranger Regiment uh, after September 11th. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think for all of us, that that uh, you know that day kind of changed all of us at some at some level. And um, and for me, I had been in Hollywood from when I first went out in 1996. Um, and had been there for a little bit, uh, you know, going on auditions and, um, and had written a screenplay that had gotten a lot of attention with uh, different companies. I was having, you know, big meetings at the, uh, some of the studios and some of the local production companies. And then, uh, then September 11th happened and, and it kind of just, you know, it, it changed everything for me. And, uh, and I thought it was something I was going to be able to uh, justify her from and, and kind of snap back into uh, focus on the screenwriting and, and the acting, but um, uh, it just really resonated with me. And, and before I knew it, I was uh, up there at um, I think it's the Hollywood and Vine intersection. There was a recruiting station with the Navy and the Army and and the Marines, and I was talking to all those and kind of looked at every option, uh, you know, from SEALs to Marines and then uh, Rangers to Green Berets, and ended up um, ended up going with the Army Ranger contract. So within a year, I was I was in Savannah, Georgia. But let's back up for a second. So where were you on 9-11? What were you doing um, when it happened? Because if that was the catalyst, I'm curious how far along you were in the Hollywood thing that, you know, was it like a paradigm shift to pull out? Were you you moving along or were you struggling? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I I always felt like I was on a cusp, but I think that everybody... I think everybody feels that way, you know, and they say kind of dedicate yourself to 10 years and then see where you're at and then make an assessment. And for me, you know, I was kind of approaching, I was a little bit over the, 
the uh, uh, halfway mark, and um, I really felt that I was getting the uh, getting to where I needed to be. Um, I had a audition for some uh, lead roles. Uh, I had audition for it's a major um, some major film studio films. Uh, one of them was She's All That. Uh, Freddie Prince Jr. ended up getting it. Um, saw him at the audition. Uh, audition for Cruel Intentions too, and you know a number of other things. And uh, so I felt like it was uh, it was a numbers game. And um, and then the screenplay that I'd written really kind of uh, blew up for me uh, in the city. It was it was uh, you know a hot read for a bit, and um, and so that changed everything. That got me representation, literary representation. Uh, same people that were repping uh, Paul Walker and like Shannon Elizabeth at the time, and. And, uh, so I felt like, you know, I felt like it was headed in the right direction. So for me, it definitely was a paradigm shift. As you say, uh, when it happened, I was down in, uh, visiting a friend in Newport beach and I was actually, um, writing a screenplay. I was, it was a right to hire and I was, uh, kind of wrapping that up and, uh, and he burst in, you know, in the morning and it was like 6:30 AM or whatever it was. And, and had, you know, said, you know, that the, uh, the terrorists had attacked the, uh, you know, the, the towers. And I, and I remember just responding. And I just was like, again, you know, it was like, I mean, are these guys going after this again? So, um, yeah, that was, that was where I was at. So I, 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 you know, hadn't quite made it, but, um, was closer than I ever was in the, in the, uh, six years that I'd been there. Um, uh, I'd so, say you, so, you basically yeah. hit every late nineties movie that we all love. And every late '90s actor or actress that we all love. I mean, Paul Walker. You had what? Can't hardly wait. You had uh, she's all that. Whatever it is. I mean, those were all the movies from that from that era that were exploding. Yeah, and you know what? I always thought it would be a really hilarious comedy to to you know make a movie about the guy or the guy maybe who is always the runner up or the the guy who gets you know goes out for the part but doesn't get it. You kind of always wonder like all the guys who auditioned for movies and then never. <laughs> never ended up getting the roles but i was one of those guys yeah you're talking to another one i'm second place in life but it's better than last but you know there you there you go so that's why i'm on a podcast here but beyond that no seriously i mean that that's a uh, you know the fact that you were able to to just you know make that decision always impresses me like i i was you know in rotc and i was already in the army prior to 9-11 in fact i had gotten off active duty just prior to 9-11 and you know, the decision for me was easy. I was already there, but it's the people who did it right after 9-11. There's so many of them who have been on this podcast. That really, to me, is like one of those things where I just, I tip my cap because at that point, it's easy to run. Like, it's easy to say, hell no, I'm not getting involved in this. And there's a lot of people who raised their head and said, no, I want to be at the front of this thing. Yeah, yeah. And and I remember, I mean, I was really caught up in the L.A. scene. Um, uh, you know, the parties, uh, there was this place called Garden of Eden, and a friend of mine was like a somewhat of a co-owner. And, uh and I can remember, you know, at first everybody you know, around L.A. and Hollywood scene was like, oh, man, I'm a listen. I'm going out, you know, I'm signing papers tomorrow and all this kind of stuff. And, and I was one of those guys. And slowly it started filtering out to where, um, you know, people went back to their normal lives and, and, uh, and started partying. And then that talk about, you know, I'm going to enlist, I'm going to go do this, uh, it, it just it filtered out as well. And, and for me, you know, that first kind of few weeks was um, – there were literally, I mean, there was American flags everywhere, and they were they were banners of American flags. There were American flags in these fences, these chain link fences that would go up the the 101 um, highway, and and I remember just feeling like I'm sure everybody at the time was super patriotic and uh, and just just completely changed and and in shock and 
And then just a few weeks later, what really, really got me, because I was trying to decide, you know, what do I do? This is like completely opposite of what I'd plan on doing. Um, and, uh, but what really kind of pushed me, pushed me kind of over the edge was uh, a few weeks later, you know, when things started going back to normal, the same American flags that were literally everywhere, like, I mean, just everywhere, were, were now um, being blown. They were in the streets and they were, you know, in the corners of, of the, uh, the gutters. And, and I remember feeling like a lot of anxiety driving through the streets and, and like feeling compelled to, to pull my vehicle over and to actually get out and like pick up every single, you know, American flag sticker or American flag or whatever. And I just, at that, at that point, that's really what drove me, you know, drove me into to making that decision. So you end up in Savannah, Georgia, uh, you enlist, you go to a Ranger contract, uh, biggest shock, biggest surprise of the whole process as far as through basic training and into Ranger school. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I mean, like, like the whole thing, uh, it was, uh, I mean, it, we're I, not I, in I, Hollywood I, anymore. <laughs> No, a hundred percent. And it just, every moment was like, was like, you know, kind of a pinch, pinch myself to make sure this isn't a dream type thing. I mean, it, when I showed up basic, I'm sure everybody had a similar feeling. It, it felt like, you know, prison and, and, uh, you know, sitting on my bunk, uh, that night, you know, with a hundred plus other guys in a big barracks room and, and, uh, and just thinking like, what the hell did I just do? You know? And, and, uh, and then, you know, but seeing there was a, there was a Ranger uniform, I remember in the, uh, 30th AG processing center, uh, center. And it was, it was in the, uh, the lobby. And, and I remember seeing it, it had the, the Ranger tab and the Ranger scroll and it had the tambourine and it was on a mannequin, it, but it looked so sharp. And I remember walking in and, and you know, having that rip contract back then it was ripped and now it's called RAS, but having that contract and, and, and just seeing that uniform and thinking like, okay, that's what I want. Um, I don't, I don't have any contingent plan, contingencies, uh, you know, to, to acquiring it. That's what I want. It seemed so far away. Um, and yet it was kind of like just there, kind of like almost like, you know, Hollywood where it was like, you know, right in front of me, but I still had, you know, still had to perform to get it. And so, uh, slowly each phase you know whether it was basic basic was a lot harder than i anticipated um uh you know going through airborne um rip so getting closer and closer uh to to something that was so surreal you know the whole process of enlisting and going through that and then and then uh something that's you know you know everybody says it's so hard to achieve and there's only a small percentage of you know elite uh community and and then you know, inching my way closer to that, um, it was always surprising, I think for me and, uh, pushing myself to limits that I didn't know I was capable of, um, uh, everything, every day was a surprise. And, and when, for listeners who aren't military, when Joel says RIP, it just stands for Ranger Indoctrination Program. And it's basically the, the lead up, you sign a Ranger contract when you get in, if that's what you want to do, they'll, they'll give you some extra training and some extra help along the way, essentially to make sure that you can get through Ranger school. So that's what he's talking about when he says RIP. So when you graduate Ranger school, I should say before you graduated, was there like motivation saying, Hey, I'm not going to finish second this time, you know, cause everything that was going on in Hollywood, was that part of your thinking? Yeah, it was, um, you know, it's hard to explain, but um, to me, uh, as hard as ranger school was, it, it seemed it seemed more, 
achievable or, or, or easier for me than, than even Hollywood. I, Hollywood, I always felt a little bit awkward there. Um, even though I, I, for whatever reason, I, I wanted to, you know, be out there and try to get into film. I always loved film, even when I was uh, a kid. Um, but, uh, uh, I think for me, you know, um, Rangers was, uh, or, you know, the, the training process, the indoctrination process was something where, um, I, I saw, the energy and the, the whatever I put into it, it seems like if you worked really hard, um, that you got a return on it. Uh, there was a return of investment on it. And, um, and that's something I didn't really see in LA and in Hollywood. It seemed like it didn't matter how hard you worked, it, you know, you still could come up empty and this, it felt more like, um, and I guess I could have still came up empty, but this, it felt more like, okay, so you're telling me if I run, you know, this two mile, you know, and this time I'm going to get this score. It was all very precise and it seemed like there was an answer to everything. And so, um, it gave, you know, gave, it seemed like there was a lot of structure and I, that maybe made it a little bit easier for me. So you graduate Ranger school, probably one of the proudest moments of your life. What's next for you and, and how quickly do you end up on a deployment and a plane overseas? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, Ranger Regiment back then, so um, graduating RIP was amazing for me. So, you know, after Airborne, going straight over kind of to the RIP, and a little bit of a holdover, and then and then going over. So, um, that that was an amazing moment, um, very surreal moment, and uh, and then you know going to First uh, Ranger Battalion as pro- basically a probationary ranger is really what it is. Uh, you have your scroll, the unit scroll, um, but you do not have the Ranger tab yet. So. Uh, you reported to the unit and then, um, and then you would train up with the unit you get really seasoned with, the uh, current Rangers and you, you know, go to your, uh, platoon, you get assigned to your squad. And then, uh, I actually, um, uh, was deployed before Ranger school. And that's usually, at least back then, that's, that's usually how it would happen. So you'd, you'd actually show up probationary kind of status. You would, you know, go train. And then you get a combat deployment and then you come back and depending on performance and, you know, maybe level of maturity and how they view, you know, perception from your current leadership, then they would have so many slots and they'd say, Hey, you know, you're going to ranger school or who's at whoever's going to ranger school. And so, uh, after the initial, you know, Iraq invasion, uh, we returned back and had a little bit of a summer. Um, and then, and then I was told I was going to ranger school, uh, you know, shortly after. Okay, so you didn't go right away. Obviously, it was just detailed. You didn't go right away, right after you got out of basic and airborne and everything else. Some people go straight through. When you got to the Ranger Regiment and you didn't have your Ranger tab, did you feel like that odd man out again? No, because um, it's actually with, it's standard. Um, so uh, I, I, never like the odd man out, but more like starting at the bottom, like right of entry. I mean, at every level, it was always right of entry. And until you... I didn't see that really let up um, until basically they kind of said like, Hey, we're sending you to Ranger school. And definitely after um, you came back from Ranger school, you, after, after you came back from Ranger school, you know, when I came back, it changed everything. I mean, like, I, you know, when I first got to the unit with uh, the squad leaders, I had a couple of different squad leaders, but you know, one of the squad leaders, the one that ended up sending me to Ranger school, he's very tough. And, um, and, you know, people, you know, whatever they want to call, you know, in terms of hazing it is a right of entry or whatever it was, 
um, it was, uh, it was pretty challenging. And so, um, you know, earning that right of entry and then going to get the Ranger, you know, tab and, and, you know, understanding how far anyone who goes there, um, can push themselves as long as they're given, you know, a hundred, 110%, um, then, uh, you know, you come back and you feel like, okay, you know, this, it's, it's time for a change. Like, and you feel it from everybody else. They give you the respect now. So tell me about the first deployment. You, you mentioned the initial invasion into Iraq in 2003. Uh, what was your job there and, you know, kind of what were you told and what were the expectations? Mm-hmm. So, um, so when I first showed up at first Ranger Battalion, um, the, the uh, selection and, and uh, platoon assignment happened when um, I got pushed out on a detail for a general's retirement at Fort Bragg. And so uh, by the time I came back, the guys that I went through RIP with um, had already been assigned to, uh, you know, the line platoons and different squads. And I was one of the last guys. And so when I came back, they had assigned me to what's referred to as AT or anti-tank. And um, I didn't even know what it was. Everybody's like, hey, you're an AT. And I was like, great, what's AT, you know? And, uh, so um, so my initial deployment was part of an anti-tank uh, uh, squad and, um, and we were assigned to the different platoons. And so, uh, you know, that was a really interesting dynamic because um, it gave me an opportunity to get to know the whole company uh, because I would basically be with, you know, one platoon for, you know, several missions and then they might change it up and they might send us. It was basically gun team attachments and they'd send us to, you know, other teams. And so very quickly I was, you know, introduced to the whole company and um, and that was my responsibility. I was I was a assistant gunner, basically, and the uh, the team leader, you know, E5 team leader, was the was the gunner for the uh, Carl Gustav. So um, yeah, that was the 2003 uh, deployment. Now, you know, the Carl Gustav was only used you know, several times during the deployment. So most of the time, what ended up happening was I just snapped in with um, the squads and would just end up, you know clearing buildings or, or, you know, sitting in a fixed position, static site position, um, you know, for overwatch in the area. So what was the craziest thing you saw during the invasion or the craziest thing you did? I mean, what stands out about that deployment to you? Gosh, um, it's really hard to say, uh, because it, the deployment kind of happened very quickly. Um, you know, we, I think we deployed over in, in like February at some point and then ended up coming back at like, early April, uh, uh, early to mid April. And, um, I think it was just living out, you know, I I don't have any crazy combat stories. I think it was the actual environment itself because, um, in subsequent deployments, everything was there. And so for us, it was, it was the environment, um, landing in a country where there was no infrastructure in terms of, you know, for, uh, for the U S and so everything that we were doing, we were living out of, you know, rucksacks and, and uh, the size of our humpies. And, uh, and, you know, they gave us a packing list that was basically like three pairs of socks, you know, three pairs of underwear, three T-shirts, you know, poncho liner. And, uh, and this being my first deployment, it's like, uh, you know, you believe the packing list and then all of a sudden you're out there and you might be out there for a month or whatever. So you're just cycling out those things. Um and so, you know, some of the sandstorms that we encountered were just brutal. Um, uh, you know, 
we, we there was one sandstorm that was like five days long, and and uh, and we I remember sitting on a on a uh, 50 cal uh, on the top of a Humvee, and and I couldn't even see like the end of the barrel um, mm-hmm. because you know, the the dust was so thick, and I was just thinking like, wow, this is unbelievable. Um, you know, we went on a bunch of different missions. Uh, some some of them were kind of you know, search and destroy kind of missions and, and different you know airfield takedowns and those were all fun but um never just really encountered any sort of real resistance it was just everybody was basically surrendering did did you feel Um, like you know when during that deployment hey this is why i wanted to be a ranger or is it kind of the other way around like this is what i signed up for like i thought this was going to be totally different no because um because it wasn't like we didn't perform it's just that uh you know i mean we were so hard hard charging with everything that we did in terms of mission and everything was so spot on um, that, that there just wasn't a worthy uh, adversary. Right. And, and, and so, um, so it wasn't like there was no, you know, in that deployment, it's not like we didn't do anything. It's just that we never came up against something, you know, that was, that was worthy of, of the training and the stuff that we did. And, you know, it wasn't like, you know, as we've re- referenced before, it wasn't like a talker guard scenario. Um, so, so you still do the, you know, the mission work and, and you still do these things, but sometimes, um, sometimes it's just not there, you know, other deployments, you know, completely different story. Sure. And and let's go to those because you said you go back, you go to ranger school, you get your tab. Um, and, you know, unless there's anything remarkable, you want to talk about that. How quickly do you get back to your second deployment after ranger school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I got back from, uh, ranger school uh in november that was november of um 2003 was my class uh had ended like right around thanksgiving did you get recycled or no you made you made it straight through nine weeks no oddly enough i i did not get recycled for ranger school but strangely enough i got recycled during pre-ranger which is run by regiment so um but but, (laughs) which was which was very frustrating at the time but um the class after me uh, happened to be like all of my good friends from first Ranger battalion. And then Pat and Kevin Tillman also came in on that class as well. Uh, and I ended up becoming good friends with them. Uh, so, so, and everybody, you know, obviously, yeah, everybody knows Pat's story and his brother, Kevin, both of them, uh, Pat obviously giving up the NFL contract, but they both joined up and, and were Rangers. Um, tell me about those guys real quick. I mean, I, I want to hear your story, but obviously considering the names, how much interaction did you have with Pat and, and what were your impressions? Yeah. So, um, with, uh, you know, Pat and Kevin, just like super, super great guys. Yeah. Everybody had always talked about how great they were. And I, I actually knew some, uh, some people who knew them, um, before I'd ever, uh, you know, finished Ranger school or before I, I think I was still, uh, just brand new to regiment and on a block leave and somebody was telling me about them. And, um, and, and, you know, people always say, Oh, these guys are great, but these guys really were, I mean, they were super close. Um, they, they just stood out, I think from everybody else. And number one, obviously the beyond the fact that like Pat was, you know, NFL, but a lot of people don't know that Kevin actually played pro pro baseball. And, um, and so, you know, they, they, they're very patriotic, um, uh, had a passion, you know, about the way they lived their lives. And, um, and when we, uh, there was a group of guys, I think right after nine 11, and it's probably somewhat the same now. Um, 
but uh, they were older. When I enlisted, uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't 19. I was, I was 26 when I enlisted. And so, um, uh, you know, a lot of the guys that I enlisted through, through that rip class, there were guys in there that were basically the same age as I was 25. There were some guys that were, you know, 32. Pat was, I think, 25 years old. He was a little bit, I think, you know, a little bit younger than I was. And so, um, you know, naturally, I think in a group, guys see who, you know, oh, that guy's you know, older, or you start learning about each other, and you learn that guy's older, and then you just have more in common. And so it kind of gravitated to that uh, within, you know, maybe like five, a group of like five guys, including Pat and Kevin. And, um, and we all just kind of uh, became friends, I think, because we had more in common in terms of uh, where we, we were at in life, not that we had you know, more to give, um, to the military or, or, or that we, uh, you know, had more of a sacrifice, but, um, uh, we'd, we'd all come from, um, the private sector and the professional world and, and, you know, trying so we weren't straight out of high school. And so that's kind of what led to the initial, I think, uh, you know, intrigue between this kind of small group. And so when you got a chance to talk to Pat, uh, do you remember any of the conversations? Do you remember anything that you guys discussed and anything of yeah, that nature? Yeah, for sure. Well, so, you know, um, Pat, Pat uh, in between, you know, classes and in between training and stuff, you, it, it's kind of like, you know, these, you see these movies and stuff where the guys go to prison and they end up learning everything about each other. It's kind of the same thing with the Army, as you know, you've been in the military. And at some point, I think guys just get so bored that they just, you know, share everything about their stories and everybody ends up knowing everything. But, um, but uh, one thing I remember about Pat and Kevin is that they were genuinely intrigued and in learning about other people and where they came from. And that made them different. But, uh, um, you know, he, he, uh, he was interested in, in, you know, the fact that I had come from Hollywood and had kind of, you know, given away that he understood, he knew that I was, that I'd written a screenplay. His brother was, uh, his youngest brother, um, was an actor and was out there, I think, trying to do stuff. And so, um, they, you know, Pat and Kevin had no interest in, in media or, you know, the film or anything like that, but they were always intrigued with, uh, I think their youngest brother, who they said, you know, thought was really talented as an actor. And, uh, and so, you know, the discussions they would ask, you know, Oh, tell us about, tell me about your screenplay. And, and, uh, you know, it was this, uh, story about, uh, the construction of the Hoover Dam and these two brothers. And I had expressed how, um, you know, the characters and, and, you know, my, uh, my screenplay, you know, Pat, Kevin reminded me of kind of like the real life versions of them. And, uh, and then we'd gone back a little bit more like Pat and I were talking and basically like all, all of, you know, we shared basically the same favorite movies. And, uh, and so there was, you know, there was just a lot in common, good, good guys, um, you know, there for a reason and, uh, and willing to lay it on the line. Do you remember where you were when you heard the news that he was killed? Yeah, hundred percent. I was in uh, Aramadi, Iraq. Just had come back on, from a mission in Habania, and uh, and they circled us around and uh, in a, a courtyard at one of the places that we were at, and uh, and they did you know they did like a nightly brief, which was not totally abnormal. Um, at the end of the brief. They just ended it with saying, "Hey, you know, one of the Tillman brothers was killed uh, this evening." <clears throat> and I remember thinking, uh, 
like instantly I was like, Oh my gosh, like who is it? Pat or is it Kevin, you know, split second kind of thing. And then probably right as I thought it, they ended up saying who it was. And, and uh, just like everybody, I think, you know, it was like, just totally just blow blows you away. And it was you know, pretty shocking. And for those who don't know, Pat Tillman was a Ranger, as you just mentioned. So uh, the community is all fairly tight and it's not uncommon. The same thing in the special ops community, when they lose one of their own, uh, it, it goes through the ranks fairly quickly. Um, did you get a sense that when you looked at those guys, because I've seen documentaries on Pat and I've read a whole bunch of books on him. And, you know, as much as I feel like I can know somebody without knowing them, I feel like I know Pat and his spirit and everything else. But a lot of people said that Pat was like, you know, seemed like he was invincible. And when you heard that he was killed, everyone's first thought was, it can't be because it's, it's Pat, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, for sure, that's, that, that's I, you know, I, I don't think I ever really thought of anybody invincible. You know, I understood, like, the threat, and it seemed very real to me. But um, no question that, uh, you know, with Pat or whether it was Pat or anybody else or several other of my friends that ended up um, getting killed, you know, in action. And, and, uh, and it always was the same. It was always the same reaction, which is, yeah, it can't be like that. That can't be, you know? And um, so I don't know. For me, at least it, 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 it never kind of changes whether, no matter who it is. Sure. Sure. Well, Again, sorry for the loss of your friend, and uh, obviously, you know, we all feel the same pain, and the, the country felt the pain of Pat's loss, and everything that happened after the fact, let it be what it is, it had nothing to do with what Pat wanted to do and what he was about, and you know that, obviously, and uh, uh, the story that it should be told is, you know, what Pat was about and who he was, not not the way he died, but beyond that, let's uh, let's get back to your story, and again, I appreciate you sharing that, but let's get back to your story. You mentioned that you were in, in Ramadi in Iraq in, in 2004, so that's when you got back there. What was that deployment like, and what were you doing? Um, that deployment was very very different from, from the first deployment, um, so on that deployment, it was actually just, uh, I was in Alpha Company, um, second platoon, and, um, and on that deployment, we had actually separated from um the, the main company and we were there uh and and so we were extremely busy and um and it was a completely different uh deployment i mean one of the first missions i remember us going on it was it was like most of the time the deployment before we we were out in the desert you know trying to keep uh the Republican Guard from escaping and, and different stuff like that and then this one it was like we were embedded in the city and so uh, the mission had completely changed. And, um, and uh, you know, it was like we had to really bring, you know, our A game on this one um, because there was just so much going on. It wasn't just like a, a desert anymore. Um, and uh, and I can remember one of the first missions we went on was with Oliver North. <laughs> wow. Ended up coming with us. Yeah, it was pretty, it was, it was, it was high profile, uh, but with a bunch of, um, you know, low profile guys and uh and um, he had cameras and it was, it was just a really weird scenario but um uh the mission itself was really uh it was very very much like kind of you know like the black hawk down type mission except for you know it didn't go sideways and um and so there was that whole you know deployment you know um just extremely busy, constantly doing things. A lot of people didn't believe, you know, that uh, Rangers 
you know, we might, we could do uh, multiple missions, you know, whether it's a daytime or night, we could do multiple missions in the same night or, you know, a day mission. And then we do like a couple of night missions. So, uh, it was just super, super fast paced and, uh, and, and, you know, definitely, definitely needed that. I think for me, um, in, in, uh, you know, that time frame because that was a deployment for me, you know, where, where Pat had you know been killed and, and there was some things happening, uh, for me personally in my life, um, outside of, you know, that Pat's loss, uh, where, I really just kind of dove in and focused on my work and my guys and, um, and, uh, and the deployment, you know, ended up flying by, but we were just extremely, extremely busy. Did and, you, uh, and Ramadi was just a total hotbed. Yeah. I mean, constantly being mortared just it was wild. Did, did you lose anybody on that deployment? We did not lose anybody, uh, on that deployment. No. Um, it was, it was amazing. Uh, you know, and once again, um, super busy doing amazing things, but, uh, but never, never came up against an adversary. So, you know, our mission is, it's just a different mission. And so, um, uh, and most of the time we ended up, we end up going and getting people on and, uh, and, you know, they might be sleeping or something. Right. Um, <laughs> and well, the interesting thing about you know the, the, the timeline of the Iraq War, as you mentioned, for the, you know you're there the second time, you're saying you're not encountering a lot of resistance, and you know for those who obviously weren't there and those listening that you know don't remember, 2003 was the invasion. You know that was the first, it was March 2003, and so for the first you know basically six months, you know as you mentioned, you guys kind of ran ran through them like a hot knife through butter, and then it was over. And then from you know the end of 2003 into 2004. There was kind of like this quiet in Iraq, like we were still there and we were still had a presence and everything else, but nothing had really started to stir up. And it really, you, you kind of talked about the, the beginning of, the very beginning of when things really started to flare. Because when you get into 2005 and 2006, that was the height of the violence in Iraq and, and hence why they had the surge in 2007 uh, to quell it. But you know, you, you're, you're talking about the very end of the, the, the calmness and the beginning of of it becoming the wild, wild west all over the place when you were there. Yeah, well, so in 2004, it was already wild west. So Zarqawi was cutting people's heads off. Yeah. Um, uh, they had just strung up the three Blackwater guys in Fallujah mm -hmm. and burned them on the bridge and, you know, completely, like, devoured their bodies. And so, um, uh, you know, Nick Berg, uh, the decapitation of him, I remember the, the video... Uh, we, you know, we had you know one of the first videos, and I uh, and we ended up not not we directly, but some guys that were with our our uh, you know our our unit basically had ended up finding like his his body. It was strung over like a, a freeway somewhere. It, yeah, obviously no head, and um, and I can remember that video and, and and saying something like, "Oh my gosh, I, I have to see this video." And, I felt compelled. Um, I remember my platoon sergeant saying, "No." He's like, I, "I'm not going to let you see that." I no, remember like, watching no, I'm, it. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, yeah I remember watching it. I, yeah, I, 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 I watched. Um, I think I watched that one. I watched one more, and I've never watched another one since. Um, I, I saw enough of what I needed to see and, and to understand the evilness, and um, and that was it. You know. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, 2004 was, it was definitely hot. Um, Fallujah was crazy. I mean, it was absolutely wild. So, 
uh, you know, I, we would go up to Fallujah. I remember a number of times, um, to, to look at, you know, doing different things. And, and, uh, so it was super, super hot. We were all over, all over Iraq at that time. And for those who aren't familiar, Fallujah, Ramadi area, about 30 to 45 minutes directly west of Baghdad. It's not, uh, not very far away, but, uh, probably one of the, the most violent and, and, uh, as you know, Joel said, it's the hottest action there, uh, around in Iraq for a really, really long time. So you get out of that second deployment unscathed. When do you get back for number three? Um, yeah, so number three was, uh, that was around, oh my gosh, they're like all blending together. Um, number three was, uh, January of 2005 and then, uh, through the spring. And that was, uh, that was also a very, very busy, uh, deployment. And so, so we were there at the same time. I got there in, uh, in March of 05. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So I think we were there until about the April time frame. But yeah, just yeah, exactly. Uh, super busy, you know, IEDs, mm-hmm. uh, explode, giant explosion. I mean, you know, the mortars, it was, it was wild, but um, uh, successful. I mean, super successful missions, uh, unscathed. Uh, I mean, we would, the stuff that we were doing, um, and, I, I, you know, a lot of times the people, at least initially, you know, the Velcro, no, no patches, all that kind of stuff. And, and I think they figured out pretty quickly. They just would see, you know, let's roll around and be heavy with guns and gun trucks and, and uh, equipment. And they just didn't want a piece of that. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, we, we just didn't really come up against resistance again, but we're, you know, very active uh, for our mission set. And to Joel's point for, again, the non-special ops folks listening, you know, the regular army does things dramatically different, um, still effective, but dramatically different than the special ops community does. And um, special ops guys back then had different uniforms. Uh, and, and the current military uniform you see was derived from the special ops community, you know, with the, with the pockets on the on the sleeves and everything else and, um, you know, accessible from the front chest. That, that wasn't the way the old uniform used to be. And so... Uh, as Joel said, when, when the enemy saw they were smart enough to realize, hey, those guys aren't the regular fighters. Those guys are a little bit tougher um, than the guys we're used to going up against. And as you mentioned, they wanted no part of it a lot of the times. Uh, and what we call the porcupine effect. You know, you, you go out there, shrills out and scare the hell out of everybody and, and nobody wants any part of you as opposed to sitting there kind of being like a, a small, timid little animal. Um, and again, not saying that the regular army was that, but you just, you, you know, just drawing the analogy. Um, when the deployments end, uh, you're coming up on the end of your tenure in the military because, uh, you, you got out as an E5 and was it just because your, your contract was up and you were done and you wanted to move on to something else? What was the reason that you left? I just think there was a couple of reasons. Um, so, uh, first of all, I, I enlisted as a citizen soldier. Um, never anticipated, you know, I mean, we had history to rely on and I just never anticipated, uh, that, the you know, quote unquote, it might have a different name today. I know it's changed a couple of times, but the global war on terrorism would last for so long. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I literally thought after our first Iraq deployment, I, I mean, like you said, it kind of like got quiet. And everybody, I just thought it was done. Like everybody was like, "Oh yeah, that that's done." I thought it was going to be very similar to, you know, the Desert Storm 
deployment where it was like just a few days and then, you know, it was done. Um, and so the, each subsequent deployment, I was like, wow, this is, this, we're still going on deployments. This is, this is pretty crazy. This is wild. Um, and so I, I had, you know, planned on going back to the private sector and, and going back to, um, to, uh, you know, pursue, uh, the industry that I've been in before. Um, and the other thing is, is that I, I also understood there was, I, I, I loved what I did. And there was an element, you know, like I, I mentioned, even when I was a child where I did like the military, I was, as a kid, I was obsessed with the military. And, and so I knew there was a part of me, you know, my dad served, he was, uh, you know, what they call a lifer. And, and, um, and so there was a part of me that understood that, um, if I did, you know, maybe stay in for the next two years, that those next two years could, could change when they asked you to reenlist again. And, uh, and they had, they had already offered me, um, shortly after my third deployment, uh, um, squad leader, uh, position, which would have required a waiver because I had just pretty much become an E5. Uh, and, but I, but the deal was I would have had to reenlist for two years. And, and so I kind of saw for me, I saw, uh, I loved, you know, serving and I loved, um, the Rangers. I I liked the special operations community, but for me, I also saw, okay, you know, um, this really requires, you know, this is one life, like this, this requires all of you. And, um, at that point in time, uh, you know, I don't think I was there. There were other things that were going on. I just had a daughter. Uh, who uh, had, was not living you know, in Savannah, Georgia at the time. And, and I really felt uh, drawn to, to going and to, to being part of her life. And so there were a number of, uh, of, of decisions. I'd also had gone and, and tried out for um, another unit and, um, and ended up uh, you know, not making the, the selection. And so that kind of also helped me um, with my decision. Uh, but I always felt confident that um, if if I really felt like I, it was where I needed to be, that I could always come back and re-enlist. Did anybody try to talk you out of it? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, all the way to the last day. The, uh, the battalion commander, who um, I'm still friends with to this day, uh, is uh, General uh, Richard Clark, who is just an amazing guy. Um, Literally on on the, like the day before I was leaving, he was still trying to to keep me there, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everybody will try to keep you there, you know. And I get it, I understand it. I mean, and it's hard, you know. It's hard. It's hard to even really kind of like leave. Um, but like I said, you you know, you have to make an assessment and then decide what's the best path. I mean, did that make you feel good that everybody tried so hard, or did you think that it's just what? they do for everybody kind of deal. I mean, I'm sure that I'm not the only one. I'm sure that there's many, many guys that they probably have a conversation with at the same time. I know just from being in range of battalion, there's probably guys that they're like holding the door open for trying to scoot them out as quickly as possible. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I would like to think in my mind that, um, you know, they really saw value and the time that I'd spent there and that, uh, you know, I know a lot of the guys that I'd served with, um, uh, you know, valued my presence on the battlefield. And so, um, you know, it makes you feel good when you're getting, especially when you're getting out, because you don't know if you're making the right decision or not. 
What do you what do you remember the most about the special ops community and what do you miss the most? Man, I think the deployments stick out in my head the most. I mean, obviously you have it's 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 really fun, you know, back in the states and and uh, you know, they always they use the phrase like, you know, going downtown, especially in Savannah. Savannah's such a beautiful town that they the first time I remember the safety brief, they'd always say, Hey, look, you know, don't go downtown, you know, beating your chest and light your hair on fire. And so in, in regards to you know that, there's a lot of fun in that, but, but really I think it's deployments because um, you're, you're, you have such a focus and, uh, and, and you really just, you know, want to do well, obviously, because you want to survive but also you understand that you're an important part of, um, of the, the unit and the unit survival in terms of, of, uh, you know, the mission, uh, that's in front of you and the guys that you serve around with. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of like a really weird way. It's kind of like a, a summer camp, you know, with guns and, uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, DVDs, movies and video games. So you leave the military, uh, that part of your life is over, and you end up trying to go back to Hollywood. And one of the things that you're doing right now is you own a small film studio production company. Am I, am I labeling it the right way? Um, in Texas? Yeah, definitely not studio. Yeah, so Austin, Texas, um, very small film company called Cedarwood Films. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have two uh, intellectual properties that we have um, gain the exclusive option to purchase. And, um, one, one of those, I'm sorry to cut you off, but one of those happens to be the story of a previous hazard ground guest, Nate self and the battle of Tacker Gar. Uh, and you know, uh, we bring this out there, like the, the, the Tacker Gar story is the, is the impetus for this podcast. And I, I've said that several times on it and I've told you about it and we've talked before we record this episode, but you know, I, I think um, that story is one that needs to be told. And all these stories on the Hazard Ground could be actually made into movies. I mean, they're, they're that kind of, you know, uh, there's the depth of all these stories. But what is it about the Tacker Gar battle that really drew you to it enough to say, hey, I want to make this into a movie? So Tacker Gar um, is as personal to me as it can get without me actually being on that deployment. Right. Because, uh, because uh, first of all, um, on the Ranger side, uh, it was the first Ranger Battalion Alpha Company, first platoon that, um, deployed on that mission. And, uh, and as you've already established, Captain Nate Self at the age of 25 years old was the, uh, ground force commander and the platoon PL. And so, uh, when I got to, uh, Ranger Battalion, um, all the guys who I already knew were airborne Rangers in the sky that I had memorized. Um, they were the, uh, guys that had died on that, on that, uh, mountaintop that day. And, um, and all of their namesakes were still on the doors in the first platoon hallway. And, uh, I remember walking down Alpha Company, uh, first platoon hallway. When I first got there, all of the guys were on their second deployment to Afghanistan. And so it was just rear D and, um, which is kind of a scary thing also because you're the new guy, but nobody's there yet. So you know that they're coming and, uh, but walking down the hallway and, and there were literally notes on the door written to all the guys on the different doors with like knives stuck into the door with the notes. 
and it just had become like a memorial. Like each person's door had become like a memorial. And, and so the guys that, you know, during RIP, learning the Ranger Creed, learning your Airborne Rangers in the Sky, and all the guys that I knew I had to know, you know, going to First Ranger Battalion, it could have been any company. But I got assigned to Alpha Company, uh, and so um, the story was already personal to me. Those the guys that served um, during the Battle of Tonkagar, nearly all of them um, were you know fellow uh, Rangers that I had fought fought with in, in subsequent um, deployments, and and had been on missions with them, and uh, and you know training, and then going out downtown and becoming friends. So so on that level. Um, uh, I feel very connected to the story, and um, and and then uh, I started first writing, uh, you know, because I thought it was such an amazing story. It was it was 2004. I actually started writing the first pages of of a, what I thought could be a screenplay for the movie. Okay, so take me through the rest of it. Where are you now with it? So today we we have a uh, we have a draft. Um, I'm currently uh, in the process of of uh, writing another pass uh, to the story. Um, we uh, I'm acting as an executive producer. Uh, actively got it out. We've we've got it's a lot of big names. A lot of big companies have almost had it there with um, you know some big studios. And uh, there's a lot of intrigue for the story. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of saturation for military stories, uh, in, in Hollywood. I, I think that, um, you know, really special ops and, and, and military stories have become almost like the new Westerns, um, you know, for the modern era. And, uh, and so, you know, it's always been a question for me because the first draft that I completed, um, I remember I completed the first draft right at the same time that, um, American Sniper, uh, had, screenplay had been completed and a friend of mine that was an agent in the um had repped one of the uh the actors in, the, in the, the movie for the casting he ended up saying hey they just sent me over this screenplay it's american sniper you know and i i know obviously because of the book right. and uh and and lots of so watching these things come together um and wondering you know knowing what an amazing story uh, the Battle of Takagar is, and then um, seeing all these other amazing stories as well come together, it got me very excited. Uh, you know that this project was going to get done, uh, that this this story would be uh, you know, shared you know, with a worldwide audience potentially. And for those again who aren't familiar with uh, the Battle of Takagar, it's on an earlier episode of the Hazard Ground. If you haven't heard it yet, go check out the Nate Self. It's actually a two part episode because it's in such great detail, and, and Nate Self tells just an amazing story and. Um, it's, it's a battle that I am, I feel the same way without ever actually having to been there. It just, you know, it, it pulled me, it, it drew me to it. And, and the story was so real and so raw. And, uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're doing and support it hundred percent. And I hope this is one time that you don't finish second. I really hope this thing gets made because it, uh, it just, you know, I, I mean, it, it's when people hear it, um, it's going to touch them. You know, it, it's really going to reach, uh, deep into their souls and, and, and in, in their hearts and, um, yeah, we know all about Lone Survivor and American Sniper and those things, but you know, this story is of that same ilk, Joel. It, it just, it, it sings the same message and everybody in America should see it and hear it. Yeah, I agree. And I appreciate your perspective on it. Um, it's definitely, uh, I think it's definitely unique, um, 
story. It's also one of the first story of its kind, uh, you know, at that at that time of the war. It was very early on, so 2002, and and um, and you know, for so many casualties in special operations world, but I think the most probably I think the hook for for me in the story is just like there's something truly extraordinary about how the entire special operations community, you know, was converged on that mountain that day, you know, Takagar translated to, to Paul mountain and Pashtun. So, um, it's just amazing that everybody was, had come together to get one guy and then seven guys ended up, you know, not leaving the mountain alive. Uh, so it's definitely, uh, definitely an amazing story. Well, Joel, you have a, just an, an inspiring story and, 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 to say the least, an odd career path. Nobody could have written your particular story and predicted the way it was going to go. But, um, you know, obviously your service to our country is invaluable. And as a brother in arms, you know, I appreciate everything that you've done. But, you know, I, I know this passion project of yours is going to turn to something a lot more than that. And uh, one day we'll see the, the, the Battle of Takugar and two wars and Tall Mountain, whatever you want to call it, um, on the big screen somewhere. So I wish you nothing but the best of luck, brother. Thanks so much, Mark, and thank you so much to Hazard Ground and all the veterans that have served with us. Joel Carpenter, thanks for being here. Thank you, brother. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.